This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. In our series in Matthew, we enter a new chapter. We're still in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, uh, given to his disciples on the Mount of Olives outside the city of Jerusalem, answering questions they had about the timing of the destruction of Jerusalem, as well as the uh, return of our Lord Jesus and the end of the age. Uh, which in their minds probably coincided uh, in history, in fact, in God's plan, they do not. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed a long time ago. We still await the return of our Lord Jesus in glory. So let's look now at uh, chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of God. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open to us your word, that you would instruct us, that you would teach us, Father, that your spirit would impress on on our hearts the uh, compelling truth of this passage to be prepared. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jesus tells this parable, he does so with a certain assumption that his hearers would understand the nature of marriage traditions, uh, festivals, In their day. It's not explained here, it is assumed. So it's helpful for us just to understand that what Jesus has in mind here is that tradition by which the bridegroom would make his way uh, from his home to the house of his bride uh, to take her to his home. And of course, in their day, an engagement was uh, 
a more binding arrangement than we think of it today. Uh, today, for us, an engagement is, is a commitment to, to be married, but an engagement can be broken uh, merely by agreeing to do so. Uh, in their day, an engagement or betrothal was uh, actually a legal condition that could be broken only by going through legal channels, i.e. effectively a, a divorce proceeding. Uh, and it was in that context that at the time when the bride was to go to live with her bridegroom, he would come with great festival and procession. And uh, what Jesus envisions here is that as the bridegroom is nearing the home of his bride, that the bride's attendants would make their way out to meet the bridegroom and escort him to the house of the bride. And they would do so with lights. It's often taking place in the evening or the night. Uh, they would carry lamps or possibly torches in order to light the way. And the light indicated that they were part of that processional, part of the festivities. And it's in that context that Jesus tells this parable. Now, we might read this, especially with its conclusion at the end, watch where you know neither the day nor the hour, and think, well, uh, Jesus is merely repeating what he said earlier, what we looked at back in chapter 24, as in the days of Noah, and people are just going on, working, or um, you know, a, a, a master of a house being aware of when a thief might break into his house. Well, he doesn't, so he's always on guard, and so forth. And Jesus is merely saying, be ready. Well, he is, but there's actually a little different slant on it here in this parable as Jesus tells it. And as we look at this passage today, we see that there are three truths in particular that Jesus presses home on us by means of this parable that he told. And the first is this. While we are to be ready for Jesus' return, that really is the, the emphasis of what he said before, we are to be ready here for a delay in Jesus' return. We are to be prepared for his return to be delayed. Now, We've already seen where Jesus says no one knows that day, that hour, only the Father. But in this parable, Jesus indicates to his hearers and to us that that return may not come as quickly. It may not come as soon as some might think it would. So while Jesus does not give the day or the hour, in fact, he says he himself does not know, only his Father, he does prepare us here be ready to wait. Look at what he says. He says, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, ten young women, young unmarried maidens, assumed to be virgins, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom in the tradition that we have described. However, five of them were foolish, he says, and five were wise. The foolish took their lamps, they had their lamp or their torch, uh, and it had oil in it, but that was all they had, and he says the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. In other words, they carried additional oil in case the bridegroom was delayed so that they would have adequate oil to keep the lamps burning until the time that he arrived. And we read in verse 5, as he was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, I don't think that's negative. Some have said, well, that's a negative thing. They weren't watching. Uh, but actually, in the context, it, it would have made sense. If it's getting late in the evening and it promises to be a long night uh, to, to grab some uh, shut-eye while they could 
to be rested for the festivities. I think that really is just a a comment uh, coming out of a historical situation rather than a negative thing. However, at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those whose virgins, uh, all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. They all get up. They all trim their lamps. They're already foolish. Notice something. They notice that their lamps are starting to flicker and go out. And so they say to the wise, well, share with us some of your oil. Give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. It's present tense. Even at this moment, they're beginning to run out of oil and go dark. Well, we need to be prepared for a delay in Christ's return, just as those foolish virgins needed to have brought additional oil and been prepared for the return or the arrival of the bridegroom. Now, as Christians, it should be our desire that Christ would come back now. The delay is there, it has been there, but it should be our desire for the arrival of the bridegroom, for his bride, the church, just as that wedding party at the bride's home awaited and, and looked forward to and wanted to see the coming of the bridegroom. And we want that. In fact, uh, as, as if I've often commented, the very last prayer of the Bible in the next to the last verse of the Bible, where Jesus says, I'm coming soon, and the response is, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. That desire to see our Lord, that desire for him to return and to usher in kingdom in its fullness, bring in our salvation and all that it is meant to be. That's something we want to see. And in fact, in Second Peter chapter 3, it, after discussing the return of Christ and in fact the, the delay of that return, Second uh, Peter chapter 3 verse 11 says, since Christ is going to return, since there is this judgment, uh, since all these things are going to happen this way, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And this is uh, 3 verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now we're waiting for it. How do we hasten it? Well, obviously God has ordained when that will take place. But he's also ordained the means by which that day would take place. Just as he's ordained what he's going to do, but he's also ordained that you should pray for those things, and in answer to those prayers, he brings them about. Well, how do we hasten the coming of our Lord? Well, you'll notice in the Catechism earlier, talking about prayer, when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we are praying for the hastening of that day, that that day would come soon. Well, how do we hasten it? Well, in the context, it's by, it's by our living lives of holiness and godliness. In other words, as the kingdom has its effects in our lives and the lives of others through us, as others may be brought into the kingdom through our witness, through our preaching, teaching, whatever it might be, we are speeding that day, bringing that day when the Lord Jesus will return. So we pray for the day to come, and we actually hasten the day by our following Christ and bringing others to follow Christ. So we want the day to come. That will be a good thing. You will not lose anything at all by the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will gain more than you ever could have imagined. We want the day to come. But why does God delay? It hasn't come. Nearly 2,000 years after Jesus left this earth, he hasn't returned. Why the delay? 
Well, if I might turn back and refer you back to 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter answers that here. He speaks to that here. In the first place, he tells us God is in no hurry whatsoever. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Peter says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. God doesn't have the same sense of time that you and I have. You, know, you and I may be in a hurry. We're anxious for something to take place. God is never in a hurry. God waited 25 years before answering his promise to Abraham to give him a son. He made the promise, you'll have a son. Abraham kept waiting and waiting and growing older and growing older. And no doubt he was anxious for that promise to be fulfilled. But God was in no hurry whatsoever and waited until it was absolutely clear that it was completely humanly impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a baby. And then God gave him that son in the proper time. He waited about a hundred times that before he sent the son, the seed of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of all that Old Testament history that took place. Now we think 2,000 years, you know, will Jesus ever come back? Well, God waited longer than that before he sent the promised son, Jesus, the promised son of Abraham, through whom all the nations would be blessed. God is in no hurry whatsoever. But the other thing that we recognize here is we ask why the delay. One, God himself doesn't feel the sense of hurry or time moving as we do. With him, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. But God also delays in order that people might be saved. Look at verse 9, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's patient. He's allowing time for people to be saved. Some have taken that verse and been troubled by it. Does that mean God wants everyone to be saved? Well, we can look at that in a couple of ways. One, in in terms of his general benevolence, we could say that this is his general disposition, that people should hear the gospel and be saved. And from a human point of view, maybe that's the way we should look at it. From God's point of view, ultimately, he is saving his elect. And in fact, this verse may be spoken or written by Peter with a view toward the elect, that all of his elect should be saved, that all of his elect should reach repentance. And ultimately, theologically, that that is the case. But certainly, you know, as we look at Jesus' delay now, this is the opportunity that we as the church have to proclaim the gospel, that all who will believe might be saved, and the delay in Christ's return gives time for that. It is given time for you to be saved, and it gives time for others to be saved as well. So we need to be prepared for this delay. The parable teaches us that first of all. We don't know when he's coming back, but we need to be prepared to wait and have that additional spiritual oil to hang in there and to recognize that he is coming back, even though there may be a delay. But we need to be prepared spiritually. We need to have the spiritual resources to wait, just as the wise virgins had that additional will to keep the lamp burning. Second truth that Jesus teaches us here, not only to be prepared for delaying Christ's coming, but that salvation itself cannot be shared. 
It cannot be transferred. It's kind of like a a ticket that can't be transferred. You can't share it or give it to somebody else. Well, that's the case here. The wise and the foolish virgins show why they are such. The wise have brought additional oil. And the point is simple. You must be prepared for the return of Christ personally, yourself. You know, it's interesting. You think, well, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't these virgins who had the oil have shared with those who didn't? Well, number one, this isn't a parable designed to teach us about sharing and, and giving to others. The Bible does teach of our sacrificing to give to, to another person, you know, to share with them, provide for them uh, when we are able to do so. But that's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is to be prepared for Jesus' return. And the, the foolish virgins say, well, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. And they say, no, we can't do that, because if we do that, our lamps may go out. And none of us would have the light that we need. And so they can't do that. So they go to the dealers, which is a fairly impossible proposition in the middle of the night. Uh, at, at the very least, it would involve uh, awaking the merchant in his sleep uh, to sell them some oil. And, and the journey to go and do that and then to come back, even as the bridegroom is approaching. And so it really is a impossible situation that they find themselves in. The point here is simple, that you yourself must be prepared for the return of Christ personally. You yourself must have the forgiveness and righteousness of Jesus when he comes in order to meet him. You see, the Roman Catholic Church's teaching on supererogation, treasury of merit, of, of other saints and others who've lived before as they're somehow stockpiling their righteousness that can be shared with you is utterly wrong. And this passage teaches that. We each must have in ourselves, for ourselves, the righteousness of Jesus, and another cannot share that with you. It doesn't matter who your parents were or what they did in the church. It doesn't matter if your uncle was a Presbyterian minister. Still less if your aunt was a Presbyterian minister, because we don't do that in the PCA. Uh, the point is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how godly your parents or your grandparents were. That does not communicate anything to you in terms of your standing before God. Just as these wise virgins could not share their oil with those who didn't have enough, they may have felt for them, they may have been sorry for them, but they couldn't help them. So your parents, so your brother or sister cannot share with you in terms of giving to you that which they have in Christ Jesus. You see, salvation does not overflow from one person to another. You cannot ride the coattails of another into heaven. Each one must be saved through his or her own personal repentance and faith in Jesus. Just as each of these virgins needed the oil to keep those lamps going. So it doesn't matter uh, what others around you, close to you, who love you, have in Christ. They cannot give that to you. You must come to Christ and receive that salvation yourself. It also doesn't matter uh, what your church connection or association is. It doesn't matter that your name is on the roll of congregation of the visible church. Now, that's important. We, we, we should be members of a church. And it's in the church that the gospel is proclaimed, where we're fed on the scriptures, where the means of grace 
preaching and prayer and the sacraments are administered. And ordinarily there is no salvation outside of the church. But the mere fact that your name is on the roll of a church, or even that you profess to believe in Jesus publicly, or that you went forward at an evangelistic crusade, does not itself mean that you are on the rolls of the invisible church, the rolls of those who truly are in Christ. As the Bible teaches, the, the visible church here in this world, congregations, churches as we know them, up and down Old Peachtree Road and all across our nation and around the world, are a mixed group. Remember the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the wheat and the tares, uh, to be sorted out on the last day. Well, so it is with any congregation. Now, as a session, our elders try to make sure that someone, as best they can tell, truly is a believer, but they can't see your heart as God can. They don't know where you truly are spiritually. They know what you say, and they see that your life matches what you say, but none of us has the capacity to actually see the true spiritual condition, the true spiritual heart of another person, but God does. The session may admit you to the role of this church, but that is not the same thing as Christ having you on the role of his church. We want the two to coincide as much as possible, but it's not exactly the same thing. So it doesn't matter who your parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles or brothers and sisters are or what they have done. It doesn't matter necessarily that your name is on the role of a church. You're not trusting in those things. You must trust in Christ alone for salvation, and no one can share with you themselves what Christ alone can give to you. This parable teaches that most strongly, most clearly. But there's a third truth here. After Christ returns, it's too late to get in. After Jesus comes back, when that trumpet sounds, the day of salvation is over. Time is up, and it is too late then to turn to him. Notice what happens here. Verse 10, while the foolish virgins were going to buy oil, the bridegroom came, those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now notice the indications here. Verse, the end of verse 10, the door was shut. Does that sound familiar? Remember our Old Testament reading last week from Genesis when Noah had built his ark and they all go into the ark and the animals two by two go into the ark. And we read there, the Lord shut the door, which did two things. Of course, closed Noah and his family and the animals who were with him in the ark, but it also excluded all those uh, who were under God's judgment outside the door. And so it is here that the, the, those who uh, have the light, whose lamps are burning, who are in Christ, are there and others are shut out. These other uh, virgins come along and the door is shut and they can't get in. And so they, uh, they plead in verse 11 saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say, you, I say to you, I do not know you. Now that should sound familiar from uh, back uh, when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, when a very similar situation, Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And the Lord will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. You see, they may have done this or that, but the fact that they lived in sin, the fact that they were content to live disobedient in disobedience to Christ indicates the true nature of their heart. And Jesus disowns them. You know, later in chapter 10 of Matthew, he would say, those who deny me, I will deny before my Father. And so almost the same language, Lord, Lord, open to us. And Jesus says, I say to you, I do not know you. You know, those are, those are frightening words. They're chilling words because they come from people who think they knew the Lord, who thought that they were good, who thought they were okay, who thought they had it, who thought they were going to be in, only to have Jesus say to them, who are you? I can think of nothing more horrifying because of the eternal implications of those words. Because if you don't know Jesus then, and if Jesus doesn't know you then, there's not another chance. Dear friends, Paul says today is the day of salvation. Now is the time when the door is open. When Jesus invites you to come and meet Him and know Him and for Him to know you. Now is the time. But when that trumpet sounds, when Jesus returns, the door is closed. And you may say to him, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, I don't know you. Don't believe we've met, nor will have the opportunity. Chilling thing. But the good news is the door's still open. The good news is Jesus' arms are wide open to meet you, to receive you to himself. And so we need to be careful, as Jesus says, to watch, for you don't know the day or the hour. Don't presume to be right with the Lord tomorrow. Because that trumpet might sound this evening. The bridegroom might come back for his bride tonight. You don't know that you have tomorrow. And that's why it says, watch therefore. You don't know. So be sure that you are ready to meet the Lord now. How do we do that? Well, I'm not going to go back, but Second Peter 1, he says, to be diligent to make your calling and election sure. And we do that, of course, by making sure that we have trusted in Christ as our Savior and in nothing else. And that our lives reflect a change. There is a love for Him. There is a love for His Word. There is a love for His people. There is a love for worship. There is a love for what is pure and right and obedient. doesn't mean we'll be perfect. We'll still sin. But it does mean that when we sin, we hate our sin. Because it offends Him. And it hurts us. And it hurts those around us. And we go to Him seeking His forgiveness. And seeking His help to be obedient. You see, for someone who is not a Christian, even though they say they are, there won't be that interest in what is right, in what is just, in what is pure, in what is obedient. There'll be a love for sin. But in the Christian, even when we sin, we hate our sin. We recognize it's for that sin Jesus died. And we want to put that sin to death in our lives. But we trust more and more to be characterized by a love of Christ, a hatred of sin. And so also, not only... Uh, making our calling and election sure, to use Peter's language, uh, but to live each day before the Lord as though it were our last. Uh, you're familiar, perhaps, with Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, and one of those is to live 
uh, as I should live if I knew it were an hour before the last trumpet. I mean, in other words, always to, to live in light of the fact that Christ could return at any time. Now, it's worth noting here the negative that the wicked will be shut out. But we also need to take notice of the positive here, that those who did believe, those who do have the oil of salvation, will be on the inside enjoying the wedding feast. Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and then the door was closed. You see, these are the ones who are with the Lord in that marriage feast, bridegroom and bride united in the new heavens and the new earth forever. I love the way J.C. Ryle puts it in his commentary on this passage, and I'll close with this. He says, The door shall be shut at last, shut on all pain and sorrow, shut on an ill-natured and wicked world, shut on all doubts and fears, shut to be opened again no more. Surely we may say this is a blessed prospect. Heaviness may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. The day of Christ's return shall surely make amends for all. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray. Come, Lord Jesus. We long to see you. We long for our faith to be sight. We look forward to living by sight, no longer by faith. But, Father, we thank you for your delay in sending back the Lord Jesus in glory. Because it has meant our salvation. And we pray that it would mean the salvation of many more. But, Father, we do pray for the Lord Jesus to appear in your good time. Father, we pray that like those wise virgins, we would have plenty of oil, plenty of the oil of your salvation, prepared to meet the bridegroom when he comes, not with panic, not with fear, but with joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.